I hide sweets. I hide them from my children and from my husband. If you lived at my house, I would hide them from you too. <laughs> my mom did the same when we were kids, but she wasn't very good at it. She, we always knew her stash was up with the fancy teacups, and we would teeter on the top of a bar stool to get, to get it, and we would just take little tiny bites so that she might not notice. She probably thought little rats were getting in. If you were in my house right now, you may or may not find some Forte chocolate bars with my canned goods. Don't tell my kids, and I'm going to move that hiding space when I get home. I realize there is no way to legitimize me doing this. The only way to explain it is this. I'm a sinner, so I hide my chocolate. It's messed up for my family, but it will be something that they can, my girls can use as an anecdote at, at a party or a sermon illustration someday. And Bo doesn't like chocolate that much anyway. But Jesus in our parable this morning was not speaking to folk who were being silly with their expensive chocolates. Our scriptures this week speak to the expansiveness and abundance of God's love and trusting that abundance enough to not hoard, worry, or sin. They're about taking a step back from the hierarchies of the world and being reminded of the way of the kingdom of God. God did not embody humanity in Jesus to make mild suggestions about what perhaps we could do better, right? It wasn't like, here are some of my feedback about the world. No. God embodied humanity in Jesus to destroy the system of oppression, to bring radical love and inclusion, to set people free from what held them back. And this parable is a good example of Jesus doing what he came to do. As my colleague and member here, Pastor Terry Kylo, said this week at text study, this parable could very well have been the thing that killed Jesus. It could have been the thing that, that set murder into the hearts of the religious authorities. It was that dangerous. Because in the first century, hierarchy and status were everything. Social systems were a precarious balance, and folk were constantly trying to improve their status in the community in order to benefit themselves in all kinds of ways. Status affected one's ability to do business, to have opportunities um, for, for the family, for the future, for so much more. And to have a low status could actually impoverish people and kill them. So they jostled for a better placement by dehumanizing one another and using each other. One who had a high enough status to be invited to or to host a meal with important people had a high level of status in the community, as one example of this text this morning. They had a lot of power if Jesus was speaking to them in this way. So when Jesus proposed that folk give up their status by allowing others to sit in their place, or even more shocking, to invite the poor and the needy instead of the powerful to enjoy a meal, he was suggesting social suicide, which could possibly span generations. And, and even bigger than that, it wasn't just one person's social suicide, because if everyone decided to step away and to stop playing the game of status, then the bottom could possibly drop out of the entire system and it would be destroyed. 
The system that protected the power of the few and the oppression of the many relied and still relies on people playing their part. It relies on lower status folk staying quiet as they don't get appropriate care for their children or not respected in the community because of their income or immigration status being used by those in the higher social strata while more higher folk, higher um, status folk justify their power and inordinate wealth by dehumanizing those below them, living as though their lives mattered more than their neighbors. Jesus wanted it gone. And make no mistake, God still wants it gone. Any system that values one over another for any reason is antichrist. Period. It's a sin. No one has higher status than another in the kingdom of God. There is no competition in the kingdom of God. We are not in competition with one another. Unless you're Serena Williams, you don't have to beat anyone. If you don't get an opportunity, it's not because someone else beat you. It's because something else is going to come along. When God closes a door, God opens a window. You do not and should not compare your life to anyone else, your progress, That is not God's will for you. I think that's one of the things that social media steals from us, is our ability to be happy with our lives. So often people compare to one another, compare their their current situation with someone else's best facade of what they're doing. That's not God's will for us. You have your own journey. That's it. You cannot trade it. Participating in an empty system to try and win a made-up game meant to distract from the belovedness of all that surround us in God's creation is a farce. So, we are invited to live like it's a farce and reject it. We're invited to not spend another minute trying to compare ourselves to each other. We're invited to not spend another minute trying to promote ourselves, but instead to promote God's love. The kingdom of God is not a pie that has a finite amount, and we need to get ours while we can. Nor is it a piece of dark chocolate sea salt that is in in and amongst someone's canned goods somewhere. God's abundance is infinite. And it is miraculous. The more we give, the more we receive. The manna in the wilderness that God supplied for the Israelites in the desert, in their desert sojourn, rotted if it was kept overnight. Remember? Our Thai leftovers last longer than that. But heavenly food and blessing is abundant, and it is not meant to be hoarded. 19th century economist Silvio Giselle suggested that money should not be able to be hoarded but instead should rot like potatoes. He argued that if, it, if there was an expiration date on money, then the economy would be endlessly stimulated and it would disallow anyone to hoard to a degree that they were keeping resources from others. His proposal is interesting to me on a lot of levels, but especially on a spiritual level. What if we looked at what we have been given by God as manna in the wilderness? that will rot like potatoes if not given out freely to all. 
What if we looked at the hierarchies and expectations of the world and decided instead to host a dinner party where we invited all the misfits, the recently incarcerated, the hungry, the down and out? What if we looked at this call as a joyful task to give what we have been first given by God away? Love, belonging, grace, forgiveness, material possessions, hope, joy. Even if we held on to it, we know that we're not going to be able to keep it beyond the grave. It will slip through our grasp. We cannot take it with us. We are mortal. We are transient. We hoard our wealth, our chocolate, our time, our affection, our church, our love, our blessings, because we are sinners. Is why we come here every week and start with confession and forgiveness. Because we are in sinners in need of repentance and another chance to live in God's will and way. And when we take that forgiveness seriously, we can change the world. We can upend the hierarchies and systems that push so many down, including ourselves. Because we are not only sinners, but in our Lutheran faith, we understand that we are also simultaneously saints, that we have the capacity for both. We recognize our own sin and our own holiness at the same time, not just one or the other. And because of that gift of being able to tell the truth about ourselves, Lutherans, we're so lucky we don't have to go out and pretend. We don't have to go out and pretend that we're not sinners. We don't have to go out and pretend that we don't get it wrong sometimes. And because of that, we can take all of that energy that we might use to hide, that we might use to pretend, that we might use to project some kind of facade, and point it towards the goodness of God, towards justice, towards mercy, towards love. We can tell the truth about who we are so that we don't become holier than thou or so hopeless that we will give up. We have the capacity to host a table for the forgotten. We come to this place and we confess. And we come to the table of the forgotten together. And we kneel and we receive the gift of hope and faith. And we're surrounded by these images in the stained glass. It's interesting to me that there's no stained glass window here of Solomon's temple. There's no glass window here that shows the vast wealth of Queen Esther. Every image in this space that we worship has to do with the life and ministry of Christ. There's the feeding of the 5,000, the lowly manger, the betrayal of our Lord. Even the shape of this place points to the life of Jesus. If you were to be on the crew that will put a roof on this place in a few weeks, you would look down and see a cross. The baptismal font, the Christ candle, the pyramids, you, me, all of it is a reminder of how Jesus has infused the lowly with hope, with a future through the revolution of resurrection. I'm not sure why you thought you came to church today, but the reason that you are here is to be told that you are beloved, that you are a sinner, but you're also a saint, 
that you've been gifted so much and that you don't have to worry about holding on to it. Because the more that you distribute it and give it out freely, the more you will receive. And you can be emboldened to live in the kingdom of God through the love that has been first given to you. So be filled with good things today, church. Be reminded of those gifts and how you are called to share them. Trust that abundance and give it away like it's going to rot in 24 hours if you don't. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, Lord, in whose humble, Lord, whose love and humble service.